right, Hepsi. What would you think about our uh, new boy band? How about that? Yeah, man, they did a great job leading this weekend, and I hope Kevin will use that band again and mix that up again for us. Um, guys, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. Man, I, if you miss first service, my goodness, it, there's nothing better than starting worship. It was right off the bat when we got here this morning, getting to baptize an 83-year-old woman uh, who's given her life to Christ, and Eddie McVeigh's mother, Vicki, came professing her faith and was baptized this morning. So what a great great time. Church, listen, we've had 14 baptisms this month. Let that sink in. Man, if we could keep that going, my goodness. Hey, yes. Listen, it's going to happen if we continue to share our faith, if we continue to go out, be the hands and feet of Jesus, letting people know the truth of the gospel. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do both here in the walls of this church. More importantly, the work that we're doing outside the walls of this church. So 2 Samuel 13, what a difficult passage we have to look at today. Uh, as I told you, you need to buckle up a little bit because the next few weeks we're dealing with the life of Absalom. You know that the book really is focused on David as a whole, but the results of David's sin in chapter 12, we said the chickens always come home to roost, and that's exactly what's happening in King David's life. These are painful reminders today that we're going to be looking at in the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, I told you last week, and I just want to set the stage again for this week, that one of the things that is very hard for us to understand as believers, and that's why this text is a struggle for so many of us, is because we have this reminder that there are painful consequences even for forgiven sin. Let me say that again. We have to understand the nature of sin. It steals, it kills, it destroys. Last week, we looked at this chapter 12, and when we looked in chapter 12, God looked at David. And remember, David repented. David knew that his sin was against God, and he asked for God's forgiveness. And literally, the Lord told David, he said, that your sins are forgiven. You shall not die. And that was a gift. Because listen, the reality is the, 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 the crimes that he committed, they were crimes. When we think about murder, when we think about adultery in the Old Testament system, those were crimes that literally people lost their lives over, and he spared King David, and I believe in many ways because of the covenant that he had with David that, about this throne and about this kingdom. And he spared his life, but folks, the consequences were devastating in David's life. And we got to grasp that fact of consequences. And today we're looking at some unintended consequences, things that if David had thought, if David had realized where he was and what he was doing and how he was living and how it would affect his family, man, you'd like to think he would go back and choose differently, but we know how many times it is a struggle in our lives to follow Christ, to do what we know is right and good, even when we see the consequences staring us in the face. So today is going to be one of those sermons where we're not going to look so much at, at the life of someone. We're going to say, hey, emulate this. What we're going to do is we're going to learn uh, lessons a little differently today. You have two choices in the way you learn lessons, right? You can learn the easy way or you can learn the hard way. I don't know why we do it, but we like the hard way. Many times we have examples in Scripture. We have examples in our lives of things that we could look at and we should look at and say, wow, I need to live differently than that. That's kind of the approach that we're going to take to this text today because we're going to see that David's family is in utter chaos. It is an absolute mess. By the time that we are done with this chapter, one of his beloved daughters will have been raped by 
the firstborn son, who was looked at as the one who would one day be king. That son will end up losing his life at the hands of another son. And the one who would be second in the throne or to the throne, Absalom, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, he's going to basically be in exile himself, not wanting to return and face his father. Tragic, tragic story, but there is life that we can gain from it and things that we can learn. I hope that this is going to be a mirror that's held up to our hearts today so that we can learn from these terrible examples and make sure that we don't drift into them ourselves. All right, so chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. I'm going to go ahead and read it all just so you can see the storyline, and then we'll go back and, and break it down. It takes a few minutes, but follow me. It's actually a story that you can follow quite easily. So if you'll listen and follow along, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend. So far, let me go ahead and tell you, underline love and underline friend. We're going to talk about those two words, all right? This guy wasn't a friend whose name was Jonadab. Now, actually, this is his cousin because it's the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very shrewd man. So this man is the cousin to Absalom, I mean, well, I guess to Absalom and to Amnon. He's going to be a big part of this story. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay, lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David said to the house, or sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. She took dough, and she kneaded it, and cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Why don't you bring me food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand? So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and he said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a great, a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go away. But she said to him, No, because this, uh, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other uh, that you have done to me, yet he would not listen to her. Then he called this young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. 
Now she had on a long sleeve garment. For in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long sleeved garment which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for if we do, we'll be, a burden, we'll be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, then please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servant, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, put him to death. Do not fear, uh, or I'm sorry, do not fear. Have not I myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule and fled. Now it was while that they were on the way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and he tore his clothes and lay on the ground and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. And Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, responded, Don't let my lord suppose they've put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore do not let my lord the king take report to heart, namely that the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now Absalom had fled. The young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, people were coming from the road behind him and by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come according to your servant's word. So it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons had lifted up their voices and wept, and the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now Absalom fled to Talmai, the son of uh, Emahud, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of the king, or the heart of King David, longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. I told you I was going to get very Jerry Springer, didn't I? It's crazy. You look at this family and, and what is happening to this family. I want to remind you, it didn't just happen in a day. The things that we're going to look at in the life of David's children, we're going to find that these issues that he has been having for years in his life, namely that these children don't know what love looks like. These children don't know what God's intention 
for family looks like because David had an issue with lust. We've talked about that. We pointed that out, that the one thing that God said, or actually three things he said to the children of Israel and the kings of those people, he said to the kings, don't take for yourself horses, chariots, don't build up an army, don't take a bunch of money for yourself. And he also said, don't take for yourselves many wives and concubines. And the reason that the kings would want to do this is because, remember, Israel said, we want a king that's like everybody else's king. And this is the kind of mess that kings around the world did. But God said, we are a holy people, a different people, a separate people, a consecrated people, and my kingdom doesn't look like those kingdoms. But David, this man after God's own heart, you might say, well, Two out of three ain't bad. Listen, when it comes to sin, sin does what sin has always done. It steals, it kills, it destroys, period. And when you let it in, it finds its way into our hearts and our lives, into the hearts and lives of our spouses and the hearts and lives of our children and the sins that we commit. Folks, let me tell you something. It sends ripples through time and space. And David, we said last week, he is reaping what he has sown. Last week, remember, God told David that the sword isn't going to leave your family. He's beginning to reap what he's sown. He's going to lose, basically, by the end of this chapter, two sons. One in death, the other in exile. I told you that last week David sowed sexual sin. He's about to reap in his life sexual sin. That's going to devastate his family. If you could imagine a scenario like this, where you have a young man that is so caught up in lust in his life that he's determined that he's going to sleep with his half-sister. When we talk about this family, they put the D in dysfunction, okay? I mean, you can imagine these scenarios. It was bad enough when we looked in the Old Testament at people's lives where, like when you had Jacob and Esau and when you had all these kind of these these issues and scenarios where you had Abraham or whoever with multiple wives and the children got caught up in all the drama and all the pressure and all the desires of who would be the first son and who would have the blessing and all those things that went on. Imagine now when there is a throne at stake. The decision to have all these wives and all these children, everybody is looking at everybody else completely suspect. That's why David was so easily convinced that one of his sons killed all his other sons because that's the way things happen in the world around them. If you wanted a throne, the greatest threat to the throne was your own family. And kings were constantly, even up through modern times, even, I mean, think about it. You see it on the news. You look at it throughout history where this very thing is happening. But this rape... It was the beginning of the demise of David's family. Now let's make sure we've got the characters right. Amnon is the first son of David. Ahinoam was his mother. She was a Jezreelitess. If you remember, there was a second son that was born to David, but many scholars believe that he probably died in battle. If you remember, the kings and their sons went into battle. That's how Jonathan and his brothers were lost along with Saul. And they believe the second-born son had already been killed in battle, which left Absalom second in line to the throne. And Tamar, they were married, or their mother, I'm sorry, David's marriage to their mother was one where they had a king in the basically the area of Syria today, around the area of Damascus, Geshur, that place that we saw mentioned and talked about. There was a king that was there, and he talked David into letting 
David marry one of his daughters. Obviously, it was meant to be a conciliatory peace thing between the two nations, and it probably signified that they would take care of each other and work together with the enemies around them. And he married this woman, and this woman had two beautiful children, Absalom and Tamar, that we know about. You can imagine the friction. You can imagine what happens in a home. Folks, hear me, understand me. We can't deal with what was, but we have to deal with what is today. If you're married, understand God's intention for you in marriage is one woman, one man for one lifetime. Anytime you get outside of that, understand you're going to be outside of the umbrella of His protection. And those things can absolutely be forgiven, but just like we're talking about, the consequence of those things can be so very difficult. I grew up in a home that was a home where divorce was in the middle of it. And listen, I had one of the best scenarios you could imagine out of a very bad situation. But folks, I can tell you most of the things that I struggled with and I grieved over and I, I just were hard for me growing up was this very scenario where I had a stepsister and a half-brother and my dad was with them and I felt like dad loved them more and he didn't love them more, but he was the ones that got to live with them all day and night. And so we came in and we felt like we were going to a hotel versus we lived there. And all those things, they, they just, you, you see they have an effect, right? And so here we have a much more difficult scenario. And so what are the lessons we can learn from what happened in this chapter? There are four lessons that I really want us to see from this tragedy today. And number one, I want us to see this one very clearly. Number one, live life like your heavenly father. If you want to know who you should emulate, let me propose to you that first and foremost, you need to be like Jesus Christ. I love that Paul had the confidence and the courage to say as he was following Jesus, you know what, follow me as I follow Christ. But there are going to be times in the life of Paul, there were going to be times in your life, in my life, where we're not going to live up to the standard that God has for us. And we've got those little watching eyes, don't we? And ultimately, what we must teach our children is we live for the glory of God. Our goal in life is to look like Him, to be like Him. When we talk about sanctification, He saved us and He forgave us from, for our sin, and He has empowered us to live differently. If you are a Christ follower, you are supposed to be growing more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. When we want to look at life and say, how should we live? How would God live this life? If He were on earth, we can actually answer that question question because we have his son Jesus. Teach your children to aim as high as they can at the only one who can help them, at the only one who is able, the one that they are supposed to look like and emulate. It is God. It is Jesus. We want them to live holy. We want them to live pure. We want them to live on mission. We want them to fulfill God's purposes and plans for their life. And we have an example before us in God. Because so much of what's about to happen in these lives is that these boys were going to end up living like their earthly father, not like their heavenly father. There is a thing in the Scripture that's very hard for us to understand, and it's generational sin. Sometimes we make the mistake of believing that what God gave us in the second commandment when he was given the Ten Commandments, there's a statement in there. He says that the sins of the father are passed where? Onto the fourth generation, right? But then it turns around and says, but those who live in obedience to the Lord, those who love the Lord, that that is passed on to the thousandth generation. 
the Jews misunderstood many times what God meant when he made that statement. They would come back later in their history, and when they were going off into exile, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had come in to conquer the land of Israel. At one point, the children of Israel stood up and they looked at God and they accused God of being unfair. They looked at God and said, we're having to pay the price for the sins of our parents. And they used a statement that said that our fathers ate the sour grapes and our teeth went on edge, meaning that our fathers ate it, but we're having to taste the bitterness of it. And God actually looked at them and he said, that ain't the way it is. He said that every man will give an account for his own sin. And the consequences of man's sins have to do with the one who committed the sin. And he looked at the children of Israel, and I want you to hear this today. He said, you know what the problem is? That your fathers were sinners. Your forefathers were sinners. They were idolaters. They were adulterers. He went on and on and described the history of Israel, and he looked at them and said, the reason you're going into exile is not because of what they've done, or what they've done. That's horrible English. He said he's doing it because you followed in the footsteps of the generations before you. Because that's what happens. Little boys look up to dads. Little girls look up to mothers. Let me tell you how life is going to be. You're going to teach your children everything about how they live their life, how they save their money, whether or not they tithe, whether they are generous. You're going to teach them how to communicate. If you yell and scream and cuss, guess what your kids are going to do when they get married? They're going to yell, they're going to scream, they're going to cuss. If the way you deal with anger is you go around punching walls and you look at your house and you got holes in every wall, you're going to go to your kid's house one day and you're going to walk in. Don't be shocked when you see that they've got holes throughout their house dealing with anger the exact same way that you chose. You see, for each of us, we have to make a choice. Will we break the generational sin through the power of Christ that is in our lives and choose a different direction maybe that our parents lived? And you say, well, what about me if I'm a parent and I've not given the example of how we should live and I've fallen into all these sins and my kids know and they see me being lazy about my walk with Christ and they see me not really being serious about being on mission and they see me in my sin. They've, they've caught me on the computer. They've caught me watching stuff on television. Whatever it is that you've gone through, the question then becomes, so what do I do? Because David, that's where he is. What can David say to his kids at this point? You see how tough that is? We're going to come back to that. It's been said that certainly a man never sees the worst of himself until it reappears in his child. Let me say that again. Certainly, a man never sees the worst of himself until it reappears in his child. You see what's happening in this storyline. A child often models a parent's behavior, whether good, whether bad. The reality is the child is often going to go further in the direction of sin than the parent is pointed towards. Another way of saying that is what one generation does in moderation, guess what? The next generation will do in excess. Folks, it matters how we live today. It matters the decisions we're making right now in this moment because it will have a ripple effect, not just on ourselves, but it will have a ripple effect on our children, on our grandchildren, 
thousands of years later, we're still reading this story. Live life like your heavenly father. Secondly, the second lesson I want you to see, choose your friends wisely. One of the most difficult things about this story is that Amnon is facing a horrible duo of circumstances. Not only does he have an issue sexually, where he's in complete lust, he's lost control of his desires, he's making decisions that are absolutely horrible. He's walking in sin and he absolutely knows it. He knows that the direction he's facing is not the direction that God would have him go. And it's bad enough when we find ourselves in that kind of overwhelming temptation. But the duo, when you add the second thing to it, that you don't have a friend who loves you enough to really be a friend, now you're really in trouble. Who you surround yourself with matters. I've always told the students when I was student pastor, very simply, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Parents, did you hear what I just said? Look at the lives of your children. Look at the people that they're with because you're looking at your children's future. Amnon had this situation where what he needed was a true friend. It's interesting because the Bible actually calls his cousin his friend, which is crazy to me. Just like when he uses the term, he loved Tamar. That's crazy. That's what they felt. That's what they may have thought it was like. But you see, when you don't know the definitions of things like love and you don't know the definitions of things like friendship, you don't understand what's happening. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, God made it clear about friendship. He said, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company. Listen, it corrupts your character. The Bible said in Corinthians as well, and it's not just a verse on marriage, which is how we always take it. He says, don't yoke yourselves to unbelievers. Don't yoke yourselves to people who are going in an opposite direction of the way that God is calling you to live and calling you to walk. Because once you yoke yourself to another person, you have to go the way that they go. When they become the central relationship in your life, in order to maintain that friendship, you've got to walk with them. We make this choice in marriage. We make this choice in friends all the time. The horrible choice of choosing to surround ourselves with people who aren't going to help us become more like Jesus Christ. Proverbs 12, 26 couldn't be any plainer. It says, the righteous, listen to this, should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. It says that Amnon has a friend. I would beg to differ. This cousin doesn't deserve the title of friend. Friends like this gentleman have ruined many, many, many lives. I want you to write this down because you need to look at your friends today and you need to evaluate today. Anybody in our lives that makes it easier for us to sin is certainly not our friend. 
this guy could have looked at him and said, you know what, man, you need help. But we don't tend to find friends that are better than us. We tend to find people that are the lowest common denominator. It makes us feel better about ourselves. He didn't surround himself with godly men. And this, this guy, I mean, that's a no-brainer. She's your sister. That's a no-brainer. You were the prince. That's a no-brainer. The law says very clearly that you can't marry her. And if you take her virginity from her, you will ruin her life. And what are you going to do? Go ask your dad to violate the law? I mean, that's what he could have said any of those things. He could have offered counsel. He could have offered help. Instead, he helps him devise a plan to get what he wants. He's not a friend. If you want a friend, you need to find somebody that is committed to you spiritually. The people in your life that you've yoked yourself to that are not committed to you spiritually, you need to get unyoked from them. Because not only do they need to be leading you spiritually and people in your life that are committed to you spiritually, you need folks in your life that are going to be honest with you. There's no greater friend than the friend that will look at you and say, you're living in sin and you need to stop. That'll take the risk, because that's what it always is. To speak truth, it's always a risk. To confront someone, it's always a risk. And what we find in the Word of God is that there are so many men, so many people that are just like this cousin that they have the chance to speak truth and they choose not to. It's no different today in our churches. We have so many people. You ever sit in a business meeting that's gone completely sideways and off the rails and everybody in the room knows that what's going on isn't right and the silence is deafening? Nothing makes me matter as a pastor than when a friend comes to me and says, you know, so-and-so is doing such-and-such, and and you have no idea what a horrible mess their life is. And I just, I'm thinking to myself, well, how long did you know this? How long were you aware of this? Why in the world do you feel like you've got to come tell me? Have you told them? Have you loved them? Because, folks, it is possible to speak truth in love to people. We can lovingly confront people. If we can't do that in our homes, what hope do we have of doing it with our friends? I'd rather have you hate me, but repent, than for me to just watch you as a friend, I can't say anything because I'm your friend and a friend doesn't confront another friend or how dare you judge. Listen, I'd rather you hate me and repent than for me to be- pretend I'm your friend and watch you drive your life, your life off a cliff. That's not love. That's not friendship. Be honest with them. And folks, we need people around us that build us up. Not tear us down, build us up. The Bible says that we are to edify one another. An edifice is simply a building, something that's been built up. And folks, that's what we're doing when we are friends with people is we take their lives, we get in the ruins, we get in the broken places, and we begin to take those pieces and we help people be put back together and we point them to Jesus Christ. If we're not doing that, then what are we doing? Let's talk about this one a minute, the third one. 
know the difference between lust and love. Live like our Heavenly Father. Choose our friends wisely. But listen, thirdly, we desperately need to learn the difference. Because you say, oh, that's simple. It's not simple. Read the text. He thought he loved her. The world has so skewed what love is. Have you been paying attention? They've stolen that word. The world has stolen that word love. They've hijacked it, and they've made it something that it's actually not. What is evident in this story is that here is a young man that didn't know the difference between lust and love. And let me tell you, lust always and often masquerades as love. Go back to your childhood years. Go back to your teenage years. Some of you, you don't have to go back very far and think about the fact of what lust is doing to you in your life. How many times did we think that we loved a person? And we found out it's just physical. It's just lust. It's not love. This family is about to be decimated over this simple misunderstanding of what love is. The power of lust is strong enough to twist the way that we see reality. If you don't believe that, then listen. How many times do we see in movies? How many times do we hear in real life? How many times did we live out this experience where someone said to us, you need to do this. We need to be sexually active. Why? Because I, I love you. There was something that we used to do, and it's unfortunate it's not done like it used to be. We used to do a program called True Love Waits. I fully believe in it. It was a call to abstinence in and around the churches because the churches, if there's any place that we ought to be concerned about sexual immorality, should it not be the church? The reality for the church is that this body is the temple of God. This is the place where God dwells if we are a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want you to think for a minute, if you were to consider for a second, one of the greatest sins that Israel ever committed was when they permitted sexual sin, when they permitted things like temple prostitution inside the place where God was supposed to be honored and obeyed and worshiped. And we would look at that and we would say that is a disgusting act to go into the very presence of God, to go into the very tabernacle of God or the temple of God and to do such a heinous act. And you see, we don't know our Bibles very well because that is precisely why God says, believers, you better pay attention to sexual sin because you're doing the exact same thing because where is the temple today? It's us he indwells us. We commune with God because He tabernacles or He dwells with us and sexual sin is such a devastating sin. You know why? It's such an affront to God. And see, we, we don't think about that. We have so many wrong definitions about love. What it is and what it isn't. He didn't have love for Tamar. He had lust for Tamar. And that passion so controlled him that he literally became like an animal. He was going to get what he wanted if he had to take it. He should have known. I mean, think about it. 
How could he not know the devastating consequences of what was about to happen? He learned, if he learned anything from his dad, listen, your sins will find you out. David couldn't hide his sin, and even though it looked like for years he was able to hide it, he was not able to hide his sin. It controlled him. It made him act like an animal. And what is so sad for Amnon is, you know what the reality is? I mean, it breaks my heart for him in one way, because this young man, he doesn't know what love is. You know why? Because David never modeled it for him. One man, one woman, one lifetime. The security and the protection that God offers in marriage, the permanence of marriage, the, the comfort that we have in knowing that my heart is for you and for you alone and I am committed to you until death do us part. I will not give another piece of myself, part of myself to another individual, either my heart or my body, because I am fully focused on you. What difference does that make? Amnon had no clue what that looked like. He would walk in the footsteps of his father. Dads, listen to that. He will walk in the footsteps of his father. Because he doesn't know what love is. How tragic. When we don't know what love is, when we don't realize that, you know what, when I love someone, when I say that I love someone, what I'm saying to them is, I will never ask you to do something that violates the will of God. If you know what sin does, how could you ask somebody that you love to do something that you know violates the perfect will of God that when they step into sin, you're bringing into their life death and destruction? How can we do that to people and say, well, I love you? Here is a man that you know what he loved? He loved himself. Because he was going to get what he wanted. If someone loves you, ladies, let me tell you something. If a man says that he loves you, he's not going to take something from you that is precious to you only to satisfy his own sexual appetites. True love doesn't persuade someone to disobey the Word of God. Let me, let me let you see what 1 Thessalonians says. It says it best, and I want you to put a mark in your Bible because I want you to go back and I want you to read it again today. I'm going to go through it quick. You need to look at it slower. How important is this issue of lust and love and being sure that we are pure before the Lord, that we understand that sexual sin cannot be a part of our lives? Men and women, that means that, you know what, pornography is a sexual sin. When you stay up late and watch the movies that you know you shouldn't be watching because of all the gratuitous sex that's in it, guess what? That is sexual sin that is harming your marriage, harming your children, harming you spiritually. Adultery, pedophilia, homosexuality, any other sin that you want to name, sexual sin, it all falls under this same category that is slowly destroying your soul. And listen to what is said over in Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. This ought to get your attention. This is the will of God. That's what all you are asking all the time. What's God's will for me? God, what do you desire 
for me. Let this sink in what I'm about to read to you because he says, this is the will of God. Listen, what, what other question, what, what greater thing could you need to hear this morning? What is your will, God? He said, it is your sanctification. Go back to point one, that you start to look more and more like Jesus who saved you, that you walk in God's ways so much that people can see you as a reflection of him. God's will for you is sanctification, but then look where he immediately goes. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. You want to know why you're struggling spiritually? If you have any of those things that we talked about in your life right now, that's why you're struggling spiritually. Because you're not grabbing hold of God's will for you, which is purity, and you've allowed yourself to fall into sexual impurity, and it is killing your marriage, it is killing your children, it is killing you slowly, and you don't even realize it. He says, this is my will for you. Your sanctification abstain. That is, you need to abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This temple that you've been given, we possess it in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. See, that's the tragedy of this story is these are the children of Israel. This is the king of Israel. This is his family. These are God's people. These are the ones who have the word of God. They have the temple. They have the sacrifices. They have all the truth in the world. And yet, look what it says. That for all the truth that they have here, it's not here. And he says, you're no different than the world. And the one thing that God has, God has called us to be is different from the world. It is one of the biggest blights upon the modern church today that sexual sin is as rampant in these walls, maybe more than it is outside these walls. And we ask God for a revival, and we ask God to move, and we ask God to bring His kingdom, and yet we stand here, and we can't figure out why it's not happening for many, many, many churches across our landscape it is this very issue right here. It's devastating our homes. It's devastating our churches. It's devastating our culture. And listen, it's one thing if we don't know the truth, but he says, you're out there in this lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't even know God. And listen to what he says. And I want you to be sure that no man transgresses or defrauds his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we told you before, and we have solemnly warned you. He's saying, be sure that you don't take advantage of others in this arena, which is exactly what we have in the story. He says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. The story really gets tragic when after he gets what he wants, what does he do? just walks away. That's probably the most tragic part of the whole story, really. It's just, it's, it's devastating. He has robbed Tamar of everything. And what began as my sister, now she's just become this woman. And though she's done nothing wrong, she did everything to stop this from happening. I mean, she looked him in the eye and had the courage to say, do not violate me. 
You're going to bring shame upon me that I can never get off of me. And you're going to become like one of the fools in Israel. And he just blows right through all the red lights, right through all the stop signs, and he just sails right off that cliff. It is so tragic. And then when he sails off that cliff... Because that, I mean, that, this is the very essence of sin is that you have this thing in front of you that you think is going to make your life better and it's going to make you happier and you're going to be satisfied. You get it, and then what is it? It may as well be poison. It rots your soul. You can't look at yourself. You can't stand yourself. You avoid every relationship around you because you think that they know what is happening in your life and it is devastating to the soul of even that man. And we see in Amnon that, you know what, now he can't look at her because when he looks at her, what does he see? He just sees his own sin, his own worthlessness. I believe, guys, I truly believe in the mercy and the grace of God. I believe in that moment he could have made a different choice. He could have went to his father and said what he'd done. He could have sought the forgiveness of Absalom and everyone else. There's many things that he could have done, but instead he takes it out on her. He says, get her out of my sight. She goes in the hallway and obviously devastated. She rips the garment that shows her to be a virgin and eligible for marriage because she knows that everything's over. She mourns in that hallway, and he just slams the door on her. He doesn't know the difference between lust and love. He was attracted to her for what he could get from her, not out of any concern for her. True love waits for the way that God has ordained it. Women, let me tell you, young ladies and folks, this, I, I, I just, I have to say this. You know, we always think, oh, the teenagers need to perk up and listen to this. No, 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 no. We're not going to get off that easy today. This isn't a youth issue. It's a youth issue because it's an adult issue. It's a youth issue because we think it's cute when they're five to give them a boyfriend. The stuff that parents let their kids watch, it's atrocious. You give them a handheld device that you don't even pay attention. They have the world at their fingertips. They can see anything on that phone. You name it, they can find it in a second. We tell them, don't watch this. It's not age appropriate. What we mean is, don't watch this. It's not appropriate. This is an adult issue that has become a teenager issue because they're following in our footsteps. And here's the reality, ladies. Here's what I hope that you will understand, especially you young ladies. True love waits. If you really love him and you really want him, then you make him wait. And the same goes for you men because we live in a 
generation where women can be just as aggressive. It's your decision. When they come to you and say, I love you, we should, you need to say, if you loved me, you wouldn't. And if they can't stop, if they can't see what they're going to cause you, what they're going to do to you, then listen, you need to walk away. Because they say they love you, they don't love you. They're in lust. They're on the verge of being out of control. And folks, if you really love God, if you really love yourself, make them wait. Make her wait. Lastly, and just as important, discipline your kids. If you want a lesson, boy, this is a big one. Discipline your kids or expect tragedy. You show me a kid who has no fear of God, no fear of his parents, and no fear of authority, I'll show you a kid that is a tragedy in the waiting. It's in the making. It's coming. You see, David's biggest issue was the law said that David had all authority in the land, didn't he? He's king. What we find in the story is that David actually had no authority at all. You know why? God was trying to tell the king all throughout the scripture that, king, you need to be a king who rules in justice and in righteousness because the day that you give those two things up, you have no authority. You have no moral high ground. What was going on in David's life was he had made such a wreck of his own life that he didn't know how to even correct his own children because he had this overwhelming feeling that everybody was going to look at him and say, what? Who are you to tell me? Mr. Adulterer? Mr. Murderer? Mr. Man after God's own heart, you're going to tell me what's right and wrong? You're going to try to discipline me after the life that you've lived? The law said he had all authority. He actually had none at that point because of his character. But let me say this. It didn't have to be that way. Who in this room has made tragic mistakes that if they could go back, they would change them? Anybody? Is it just me? Yeah, I didn't think it would be. Things that we're ashamed of, things that are devastating to our life. You know what? We have the chance right now in this moment to get our lives right with the Lord. We have a God who is gracious. He's mighty to save. He will change us and transform us. He can take those sins. He says, if you confess your sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. And not there, just stop there, but he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What most of us need to do is we need to go back to the Lord, and we need to get our lives right with God, and then we need to have the courage to go stand in front of our wife, in front of our children, in front of our peers, in front of our church, wherever it is that we are struggling to lead because of this sin that has overwhelmed us, and we need to have the courage to go back and say, the life that I was living was not honorable to God, but I've repented, and I've changed, and my life is going to be different. I'm not going to keep taking you guys down this wrong road that is directed towards hell and death and destruction, but I'm going to lead you towards life, and I need your forgiveness but things are going to be different. See, most of us never step into that new day. We just sit and we wallow in what was when Christ has said, man, I, 
through my, listen, God says, I made you free. And if I set you free, what are you? You are free indeed. Some of you are living as if you've not been freed. We said last week, guess what you can't change? You cannot go back. I wish, oh, I wish I could. But God has given us a new life. And we can go a new direction if we choose. And then you'll be able to discipline your kids. Then you'll be able to speak truth into those that you love. Because parents, let me just say this. I'm going to make it as plain as the Bible does. A father who does not discipline his kids does not love his kids. It doesn't get any plainer. When you understand love, it means that you're willing to speak truth into the lives of your family, your wife, your kids, those that are around you in the church. And because you've been forgiven and set free, listen, I don't stand here on the authority of my past. I mean, thank God. I've been forgiven and I've been set free. And Christ has given me a calling and a ministry and he's given you one in your home and in this church. And it's time you step up to the plate and you live as if you're free and you start to bring change into your home, into your children, into the lives of the people that you love that are all around you. Love them enough, care for them enough to speak into their lives. Because if we don't start to change first ourselves through the power of Christ, and if we don't then go and share the gospel and share the truth that Jesus Christ can make all things new, the way we're living doesn't have to be this way. If we don't go to our families and have the courage to get on the right path through the power and strength of Jesus Christ, then let me tell you something. The only way this is going to end is in tragedy, which is what I mean. He didn't protect his daughter. He could have. David could have protected his daughter. He didn't. He could have corrected Amnon. He didn't. What we see in David's life, and we're going to see over and over and over, is that he was indulgent to his children. He wanted to be, I don't know if it was their friend, or I don't know if he just the weight and the guilt of all that he had done, but whatever it was, if his kids said they wanted it, then he gave it to them. I mean, think about the words, his own daughter. I would hate to think that my own daughter would say of me, you know what? Just go ask my dad, even though it's incest, even though it's wrong, even though it's against the law, even though it is going to bring shame and, and all this stuff upon us, even though it's going to make you a fool and make me shameful. You know what? Just go ask dad, because if you go ask dad, remember when she said that? You can go to dad, you can go to David, and you can ask him, and you know he's going to give you whatever you ask for. God help us when that's the attitude of our children. When they have no qualms about saying, hey, I want to go stay out till three in the morning with my boyfriend. Let me go ahead and tell you something. After 10 o'clock, there ain't nothing good happening. You want to do that? You want to play that game? You're playing roulette with your children. Well, you know what? I mean, that's the life I lived. I mean, my parents let me. Listen. Be smarter. Be wiser. Quit making all the excuses and parent and love. 
and deal with these kids. We don't get the impression that these kids were whipped a day in their life. That's what's wrong with half the kids in our culture today. You need a good flip-flop sometimes. The world will tell you that your kids will hate you for discipline. I'm telling you, they will love you for it because there's security in knowing that you care enough about them to discipline them. What if we don't? Well, let me tell you what it cost Tamar. The loss of her virginity in that day. See, unfortunately, in our day, it doesn't mean anything, which is tragic in itself. In that day, what it meant, she would likely never be married. Listen, she was a princess. She was supposed to marry a prince. She was supposed to live a life of royalty. Could you imagine every dream that she had as a child, being blessed to be raised in David's family? All of that in a moment gone, taken from her. And she wasn't lying when she said, I will have to live the rest of my life in shame. Because she would never be married, guess what else? What woman doesn't want to have children? She knew that that is exactly what that meant too. Can you imagine how devastating it is for her? That that choice was just taken from her. She'd spend the rest of her days in Absalom's house in shame. What did it cost David, his daughter? Amnon's going to lose his life. That celebration that he called him to two years later, you can imagine the bitterness and the anger and the resentment that had grown in the heart of Absalom and he throws a party because that's what you did in those days when the harvest would come in and the sheep shearers were there. They were probably about to make a lot of money on all this wool that was going to come off these sheep and they would celebrate and they would give thanks and all those things. And so it made sense when he asked King David, hey, why don't you come celebrate with us, right? Dad, come on, we're going to have a big celebration. The harvest is coming in. And David says, son, listen, I don't want to be there because if I come, I got to bring the military and the bodyguards and it's a big hurrah if I'm there and it's just going to be, I'm going to be a distraction. And he says, well, why don't you let Amnon come? And can't you see that David kind of stuttered there? It's like he knew. We see it, right? I mean, you got to read in between the lines. If somebody hates somebody, you see it. And he specifically asks for Amnon, but he gives him what he wants anyways. And he gets him drunk and he kills him. In that moment, could you imagine David? He thought for a brief moment, and think about it, the promise of God was that he would have this throne forever. In David's mind, when word gets back to him, talk about putting fear in his heart, he believed that every one of his sons was dead. And then he gets word that it's just Amnon. But listen, your firstborn son, your third son now has to be in hiding. He can't even come home. 
and the story is just going to get worse. And there's so much tragedy in the coming pages, and there's so much that we can and we must learn. And as musicians come this morning, church, I just want to encourage you today, don't, don't spend one more day out these mistakes. Learn from someone else. You don't have to go to the school of hard knocks. You don't have to go through this yourself to understand the nature of what happens when we choose to live this way. Let their lives be an example for you in the negative sense that I won't choose this life. I will live my life like my heavenly Father. I will, from this day forward, make sure that I choose the friends in my life that are going to encourage me and they're going to love me enough to speak truth to me. They're not going to ask me or lead me into sin. Know the difference today between lust and love. Get control of your life. Ask Jesus to forgive you and cleanse you and change your heart because if you are stuck and steeped in sexual sin, there's nothing coming but tragedy for you. Hear me. There's nothing coming but tragedy for you and for everybody that you love, and you will have no one to blame except yourself. Parents, let's love our kids. Let's teach them to fear the Lord. Let's teach them to honor God. And the best way to do that is not to be like the dad with a cigarette in their mouth telling their son he shouldn't smoke. If you want them to go a direction, let me tell you, you aren't here to herd your family, men. You're to shepherd your family. And what a shepherd does is they know his voice. They know that they're loved. And a shepherd gets out in front and wherever he wants the sheep to go, what does he do? He leads them there himself. Some of you are on the wrong end of it because you're back there trying to drive them like cattle doing your thing and asking them to do something totally different. It never works that way. Love your kids. Love your grandkids enough to discipline them and to model for them what godliness looks like.